Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm with Christy and I love Christmas. I love it. The season comes so fast. Yes, thank you. I like my people are here. Every year I feel like the season just sneaks up on me and I'm like, oh my gosh, there are six days left until Christmas morning. How has this happened? I'm here for all of it. I love the music. I love the movies. I love the hustle and the bustle and the shopping and the gift giving and the wrapping and the sparkles. I love all of it. And I really love a good nativity play. I mean, who doesn't want to see cute little kids dressed up and putting on the Christmas play? It's the cutest thing, right? Well, in 2014, Novation Children put on a Christmas nativity play. I have four kids of my own, and three of my four kids were involved in this. My oldest daughter, Audrey, she was nine years old at the time, and she was, she was Mary. And then my younger two kids, Ashlyn, who was, I think, about five, and Owen, who was only like two and a half, were cute little angels and little barn animals. And let me tell you, this play, it was Owen's acting debut. It was also his finale. I don't think we're ever going to see Owen up on stage again, but man, did he shine in his moment of fame. I asked Joel to put together a couple little clips. Excuse the low quality of this, you know, iPhone filmed video. But um, just so you know, Owen is the one who, who you're going to see. He runs out on stage all alone. It's super cute. Go ahead and watch this with me. year children's ministry volunteers who wants to coordinate a nativity play anybody no so cute right i love a good nativity play but i do think that our familiarity with the christmas story causes it to become a little bit watered down for us a little bit sanitized so what i'm hoping we can do today is approach the scriptures and this story with 
fresh perspective, that we can just kind of remove those lenses of familiarity and allow the just unbelievable reality of what God did in coming into our world as a human means for us. So that's where we're going to go. We are going to read a section of scripture out of the first chapter of Luke. But before we jump in there, I just want to put this in context in terms of kind of the whole story of the Bible. So if you can travel back with me to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have this beautiful narrative poem about creation and God speaking things into existence. And, you know, he separates the, the day from the night and the land from the sea. And this, this story culminates, this poem culminates with the creation of humans made in God's image. And we have Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect relationship with God, with one another, with creation. And then we get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, kind of sneaks in and confuses Adam and Eve, and he causes them to question God's word and God's character and to wonder if God really loves them and really has their best interest at heart. And Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat from the one tree in the garden that God said, don't, don't eat from this tree. And that, at that moment of disobedience, sin enters into the world, and their, their relationship is broken between themselves and God, with each other, with the very creation that they were given to steward over. And in Genesis 3, verse 15, I'm paraphrasing here, but God is talking to the serpent. And God says, I am going to send a human deliverer who will be stronger than you to defeat you, who will have victory over you. And this is our very first foreshadowing of Jesus and of what he would come into the world to do all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. If you fast forward a little bit to Genesis 12, we have another account here of God speaking to this man named Abram. Now, Abram was an old man. He was married, but he had no children. His wife was barren. And God tells Abram, hey, I am actually going to do an amazing thing through you. I, your name is not Abram anymore. Abram meant esteemed father. He said, your name is Abraham, which means esteemed father of many. And I am going to make you the father of many nations. And through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. Again, this foreshadowing of the Savior who was to come. Now, the rest of the story of Abraham's family, Israel, is this kind of repeating pattern of what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Because Israel doubts God's word, doubts God's character, wonders if God really loves them, wonders if God really has their best interests at heart, and again and again and again, they turn away and they disobey. And again and again and again, God rescues them. He redeems them. And that brings us to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, where we are going to dive into the story and see this culmination of that promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Read with me here. This is Luke 1. You don't actually have to read out loud with me. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, this account of Gabriel telling Mary what is about to happen is what we call the incarnation. Now, the incarnation just means it's the term that we use to describe the eternal Son of God without ceasing to be, caught, to be God coming into our world with a fully human nature. Now, that's a lot for us to wrap our heads around, but that's where we're going to go here in a minute. I want to draw our attention to a couple of things out of that, that large section of Scripture we just read. First of all, in Luke 1, 32 and 33, listen again to what the angel tells Mary. The angel says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, if you were to do a word study of that term, most high, you would find many, many, many instances in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That term, most high, refers to God, to Yahweh. It denotes absolute right to lordship. So what the angel is telling Mary is this baby that she's going to bear, that she's going to bring into the world, is begotten by God, most high, is of the same essence as God the Most High, yet he's going to be born of her, a human woman. He goes on and he tells her that this baby is going to have the throne of his father David and that he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and that his kingdom will have no end. Now, Mary was a Jewish girl. She was a young teenage Jewish girl. She would have grown up hearing the scrolls read. This language being from the line of David, from the house of Jacob, a kingdom that would never end, this would be familiar language to her. And I imagine that a dim understanding was probably blooming in her mind, trying to wrap her mind around, what, what is this angel telling me? This is unbelievable. Throughout the Old Testament, there's just so many um, prophetic references to the Savior, the King, the one to come, being from the line of David, whose kingdom will never end. So we know that Mary's mind had to have been turning. I think when we read this, there's, there's two things that we have to try to wrap our minds around the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. And let me tell you, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, I have spent the last few weeks studying the dual nature of Jesus, and I, I'm fascinated. I'm going to continue um, the studying that I've started over these last few weeks. But it's difficult for us to understand. This is a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around, but I do think that it's important. So first of all, as we consider this, we need to remember that Jesus is Lord, full of divinity, full of power. 
It's easy to think about the baby in the manger, the songs that we sing, the nativity play that we watch, and just think, oh, look at the cute baby Jesus. He's so precious, he's so tender, he's so innocent and vulnerable, and that's true. But we have to remember that that baby in the manger becomes the savior on the cross and is reigning high as king, and he's coming back one day. And all of that power and all of that glory is bound up in that baby in the manger. One of my favorite uh, descriptions of Jesus comes from a letter of Paul to the Colossians. And Paul, in this, in this section of scripture, he is describing Jesus as the creator, the sustainer, the forgiver, the redeemer, the reconciler of all things. I want to read this section of scripture to you. And as I do, try to hold in your mind's eye that image of the baby in the manger. And remember that what Paul is saying is true of the baby in the manger. This is Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Isn't that incredible? Those words are so powerful. And when we allow our hearts to just marinate in that reality, that that baby in the manger is this Jesus, creator, sustainer, redeemer, forgiver, reconciler of all things. It's unbelievable. And yet, Jesus was also fully human. That's the other side of this coin. He was fully divine, full of all power and deity, yet also fully human, without diminishing any of his deity and power. Jesus existed like us. He had human needs. He had human emotions. He had human limitations. And yet, he was without sin. He was always perfectly aligned with the Father and the Spirit. In the incarnation, God so closely binds himself to humans that he becomes the human that we were made to be. And now, through him, we can become the humans that we were made to be. It's unbelievable. Jesus does two things for us in the incarnation. On the one hand, he shows us what God is like. In, uh, I think it's John 14, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And one of them says, oh, I would be satisfied if I could just see the Father. And Jesus responds and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Scott Applegate, our head pastor, he says frequently, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He came to show us what God is like, but he also came to show us what we are like. He came fully human, as you and I are human. In um, the book of Philippians, Paul, again, is, is actually writing to the Philippians, and he's encouraging them to walk in humility, but his reason for, for encouraging them to walk in humility is this description of the humanity of Jesus. So I wanted to read it to you. This comes out of Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8. 
Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was fully human. He understands what it's like to be human. Another fantastic chapter in the scriptures that describes the humanity of Jesus and why it matters comes out of Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read it at length in a moment, but right now I just want to draw our attention to the first part of Hebrews 2 verse 14. And it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. Can't get more clear than that. He was fully human as we are fully human. As I've been studying over these past few weeks, I came across an article written by a man named uh, the Reverend William Bokestein. And the article was really helpful in just how, uh, helping me to think through this dual nature of Jesus, his divinity and his humanity. So I just wanted to read you one quote um, from this article. He writes, the relation of Christ's natures to his person is mysterious, but it is important. If we fail to recognize the unity of Christ's person, we might see him as divine with some human characteristics or as human with some divine characteristics or as a confused combination of the two. Jesus is one Christ with both a human nature and a divine nature, and these natures do not bleed together. In Christ, God added to himself our humanity while continuing to be God. I find that really, really helpful. We don't want to just think of Jesus as human with a little divine sprinkled in or as divine, but like he kind of gets what it's like to be human. No, he's fully both. And this matters so much. And the reason that it matters so much is because abundant life and victory are ours because Jesus came as fully divine and fully human because of his life, death, and resurrection. Our life is changed. Our reality is changed. The history of the entire world is changed. I don't think there's a more important moment in all of human history than the incarnation because it changes everything. I want to go back and read the rest of that section of scripture in Hebrews. Um, remember, the first part um, of, this, of this verse said, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. We're going to keep reading. This is Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that his son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. If you were here a few weeks ago, when we started this series, Scott talked about Jesus and the way he defeated our three biggest enemies. And it's laid out for us right here in these verses from Hebrews. Jesus defeated the devil, death, and sin. We can walk in freedom, no longer slaves to fear, to sin, 
because of what Jesus did. It's absolutely mind-blowing that the Son of the Most High came in to our broken world, to the cesspool of bitterness and selfishness and ugliness, to the distorted thoughts of our minds, to the distorted desires of our hearts. And in his incarnation, the Son of the Most High takes what happened in Genesis 3 when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, and he just undoes it. He turns it around. He changes the narrative for all of history. It's unbelievable. And yet we read the story around Christmas time and we just think, oh, that's so sweet. The baby Jesus in the manger. Oh, it's so much more than that. My heart is just stirred right now, just thinking about the reality of his love for us, his love from the very beginning of time. Jesus wasn't plan B. Jesus wasn't like, oh shoot, what the garden, what happened? We got to figure something else. No, from the beginning of time, God's love for us is so great and so powerful that he entered into this brokenness for us to deliver us from it. It's unbelievable. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this reality, to the good news that the son of the most high became one of us? Well, I think we can really learn a lot from Mary and from Mary's response in this section of scripture we started with. In Luke chapter one, Mary does three things that we're gonna look at and learn from. So come back with me if you can to, uh, to Luke one twenty nine. So the angel comes to Mary and before he tells her anything about you know, what's about to happen, he, he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then Mary, it says in the, in the scriptures, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this was. Now, in the original language, that phrase, greatly troubled, it's actually an accounting term. It means to, to reckon, to balance the books, to try to make sense of something. And Mary, here at the very beginning, knowing there's something crazy going on, she takes an account. She engages her intellect and looks at the experience, what is happening to her right now, what she knows to be true, and she's trying to make sense of it. I really, really respect Christian thinkers who apply their minds to their faith, who are very intentional about understanding why they have hope. Actually, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter instructs us to do this, to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have, to give a reason for the hope that we have. So the first thing that I think we see Mary doing here is this, this really practical taking an account. Let's do that. You and I can do that. Whether it's engaging with the gospel for the first time, maybe you're taking account of hearing this amazing news that God came into the world and lived and died and came back to life again in order to set you free. Engage your mind in that. Take an account. What does that mean? How does it fit together? How does it make sense? Christianity is a very compelling worldview. It can hold weight. Take an account. The second thing that Mary does in Luke 1:34, Mary deals with her doubts after the angel tells her, hey, FYI, you're going to have this, the son of God. He's going to be born to you. She says, how can this be? Because I'm still a virgin. Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. And in this culture, in this time, engagement was kind of like 
step one of marriage. It was a more serious and more legally binding agreement than what we are familiar with engagement being. But she was not living as a married woman with her husband yet. She would have still been living at home with her family. Joseph was probably building on an addition to his family home, waiting and preparing to bring Mary home. So Mary's listening to this, this unbelievable statement from the angel Gabriel about what's about to happen, and she's got some doubts. And she doesn't push him aside. She doesn't try to pretend that they're not there, but she humbly lays her doubts out there. Says, how can this be? This doesn't really make any sense. I think we are tempted to ignore our doubts sometimes. When we're following Jesus, when we're trying to walk in faith and understand who God is and who he's called us to be, sometimes doubts surface. And the temptation is to be like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna push that aside. I'm gonna try to ignore that. But let me tell you, you better deal with your doubts. If you don't deal with your doubts, at some point, you're gonna have to reckon with them. And the quickest way through them is just to be honest about them, to lay them before the Lord, to work them out in community with other believers. I love the story of uh, Peter in Matthew 14, where he walks on the water. If you're not familiar with the story, Jesus sends the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, and he doesn't go with them. He sends them out, and they're out in the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up. So they're like struggling out there. And Jesus is like, you know, I think I'm just going to cruise on by, walking on the water. So he just goes walking by the disciples while they're freaking out in the boat, trying to figure out how to deal with the storm and get safely to shore. And the disciples see him and they freak out and they think he's a ghost and they're scared to death. And Jesus says, guys, 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 it's okay. It's me. It's me. And of all the disciples, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me to walk on the water with you. And Jesus is like, come on out. So Peter steps out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. This is unbelievable. But then he loses his focus and he starts to what? To doubt. He starts to doubt. And as soon as he starts to doubt, he starts to sink. But guess what Jesus does in light of his doubt? He immediately reaches out a hand and rescues him. Your doubts will not dethrone Jesus. He can handle them. So let's do what Mary did and deal with our doubts. Just be honest about them. And then finally, what we see Mary do after she takes an account, after she deals with her doubts, in Luke 1.38, she says a really incredible thing because she humbly submits herself to the Lord and she trusts him. Listen to these words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's incredible faith. I think sometimes we think, oh, how fun for Mary that she got to be the mother of Jesus. How exciting. I don't think that's how Mary would have felt. She's engaged to be married, but not living with her husband yet. She's a Jewish woman, which means like really what Jewish women needed to do in this time and culture was marry well. They needed to marry into a family where they could have babies. And that is how they had their, their status and their honor. And Mary had to have been thinking, what am I going to tell Joseph? 
How am I going to explain this to Joseph? In, a, in a, another time, she would have been stoned to death for being found to be with child before she was married. And certainly she thought there's no way Joseph's a good man. Maybe he won't, you know, bring me before the, all the elders of my community, but he's not going to just be like, cool, let's get married. She had to be thinking, this is horrible. This is horrible for me. I'm going to be living in poverty. I'm going to have an illegitimate child. My reputation is ruined. Those thoughts had to have been running through her mind. And yet, she had enough faith in God. She was familiar enough with his character and with his promises that she responds with this incredible statement. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And you know what's really cool? I was thinking about this, that Mary demonstrates this beautiful submission to God's will and trust in God's character. And in Jesus's humanity, he did the exact same thing. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's in the garden and he's praying to the Father and he says, God, if there's any other way to do this, can we take that path? I don't want to do this. But then what does he say? He says, but not my will, but your will be done. The exact same submission in the humanity of Jesus to the Father's will. The exact same trust in the goodness of the Father. That's incredible. And I don't think that there is a more appropriate time for us to reflect on this than right now. I don't know about you, but I love new beginnings. Going into the new year is one of my favorite things. That week between Christmas and New Year's, I spend that whole week journaling and goal setting and thinking about what the year to come is going to look like for me, what I want to pursue, what I want to turn away from. I spend a lot of time doing that. And how many people know, who, who remembers January 2020? What plans might you have had January 2020? And then March 2020 happened and everything went out the window, right? That's true every year. Hopefully we don't ever live through what we've lived through these past two years, but the reality is we can make all the plans we want and set all the goals that we want, but we don't know what tomorrow holds, but what confidence we can have when like Mary, we know the son of God, the son of the most high, who broke into our world to give us life and peace and hope, regardless of our circumstances. So what I want to invite you to do is whatever season of life you're in, whether you're headed into the new year with high expectations and joy and a sense of abundance and possibility, or whether you're in a really different place and the year to come feels uncertain, feels scary, feels disappointing, let us be able to say, like Mary, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we can have all confidence in saying that because Jesus, Jesus is king. He is faithful. He is good. The purposes that he's working out in the world are good. One day, we're going to be able to look back at everything that doesn't make sense now. All of the disappointment, the brokenhearted places, the places where we have just said, God, I don't understand. But one day, we're going to look back and we're going to see how God's been weaving together this beautiful tapestry of redemption that is for our good and for his glory. So let us go into this Christmas season, into this next week, focusing not just on the outer wrappings and trappings of Christmas, but on the reality that the son of the most high 
was born as the baby in the manger, was the savior on the cross and is reigning today, we can trust him. He's good. Put all your weight on him because he will not disappoint you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, your faithfulness, your love for us that took you from the heavens and brought you willingly into our world as one of us in order to save us, to set us free, to give us all the hope and the peace and the purpose and the joy that we need to walk through whatever this life might hold, being able to say, let it be to me according to your word, because we trust your word. We trust your character. Father, as we celebrate this week, let us just keep that at the forefront of our minds, that our hearts well up in worship as we focus our hearts and minds on the, the truth that the Son of the Most High came into our world and is coming back again. In Jesus' name, amen.